You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. One of the origin stories of SOCAP is a conversation with a very notable billionaire and philanthropist who articulated to a social entrepreneur that he had one pocket for investing and one pocket for philanthropy, one pocket for making money and one pocket for giving it away. He didn't know how to support a social enterprise that didn't clearly fit in one of those pockets. Pretty much all of the conversations that we have on this podcast and at our events is trying to disrupt that very common and entrenched two-pocket thinking. My conversation with Steph Gripney of the Impact Finance Center and Teresa Ish of the Walton Family Foundation unpacks the challenges and opportunities that arise when a traditional grant-making foundation starts to explore other ways that their money can support solutions, even if it isn't by giving a grant. This episode gets into the nuances of a full spectrum of capital, thinking about the ways that the same money is understood and treated differently depending on expectations of return, perceptions of risk, and potential for impact. And the bonus twist to this conversation is that it's set in the context of the Walton Foundation's focus on sustainable fisheries. Teresa Ish is a program officer focused on the environment, and specifically the Oceans Initiative. She reached out to Steph Gripney of the Impact Finance Center, a nonprofit academic center that identifies, trains, and activates individuals and organizations to become impact investors for training around impact investing that resulted in an innovative investment that falls somewhere in between a grant and a loan on that spectrum of capital. We'll jump into the conversation where I'm clarifying Teresa's role as a grant maker for the foundation. She's not part of the investment staff. And later, you'll hear Steph expand beyond this Walton example to the momentum that she's seeing for many types of investors to work across the spectrum of capital and move away from two-pocket thinking. Teresa, in your role at the Walton Foundation, traditionally foundations are pretty siloed in terms of that uh, making money pocket, the investing money is what happens with the endowment, right? And then the program officers are doing the philanthropic giving away money. And is that a fair assessment that typically those two pieces aren't necessarily in conversation with each other about the impact of the investments nor the sort of uh, other financial options in the program side? I think that that's right. I mean, my my remit, my job is to take this grants budget that I have and deploy it in a way that that helps the foundation achieve the goals, the conservation goals that we've set up for the environment program. And um, it, it doesn't include thinking about the investment side. It doesn't include thinking about the endowment or how it's growing or where it's where it's growing and and that work um in in the foundation is separate um it's managed by a different set of people they're um they're housed under a different entity and so the program officers in the foundation are really tasked with thinking about the impact of our grant dollars first and foremost and then within that you have that focus on sustainable fisheries which i think 
to compound the challenge of thinking about um, financial elements of grant dollars is understanding how there could be a market around something like oceans. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? One, I guess, how do you have that focus? Where does that focus on fisheries come from within the environment program? Yeah, when we um, when the foundation looked at the threats facing the oceans, some of the things we wanted to think about is are, are what problems are actually solvable in our lifetime? Where do we have models that we can apply to to these problems to deliver the results and and the and the positive conservation? Gains and and in the oceans, the biggest one of the biggest threats to the ocean that's driven by activities on the ocean continues to be unsustainable fishing, and we have models from around the world where those problems can be solved, and they're solved through a, a mixture of private sector engagement, governance, um, civil society organizations, and scientists working together to improve the health of the fishery through effective management and appropriate sort of science and enforcement to ensure that you're not taking too much fish out of the ocean. And, and why this is really exciting and creates some opportunities for different ways of thinking is because of that critical role of the private sector. Um, overfishing wouldn't be an issue if people didn't eat fish. And when people eat fish, they typically buy it from somewhere. And so that creates a whole host of business opportunities for companies that recognize that in order to sell fish, there have to be fish, and customers who want to eat fish and therefore want to buy their fish. Um, and that's really helped shape how we think about um, engaging in improving fisheries and, and how we apply our grant dollars to motivate the supply chain to participate in supporting sustainable fisheries, but then also to use our grant dollars to work with the with civil society and and nonprofit organizations to both work with businesses, work with governments, work with fishermen to help ensure that we have a, a sustainable fisheries management system in in the places where we work. So it's um, exciting to have a problem that actually tangibly feels solvable because we've seen a number of countries effectively manage their fisheries within their waters. And we're, we're looking to replicate that sort of success around the world. And so you're in this market that actually does touch markets pretty closely because people buy and sell fish. How did you start to look at this as not just a problem that could be solved through grant funding? As we've worked with, um, with the private sector, we've seen increasingly that um, that companies who sell seafood into markets that have demand for sustainability are winning contracts with retailers because they can offer more sustainable product. They're getting um, sometimes better prices because they offer both a high quality and sustainable product to, the, to their customers. Um, so there is this overlap now between business incentive to provide sustainable seafood as well as the conservation gains that the foundation is seeking to achieve in the form of sustainable fisheries. And so where there's actually value to the companies, it really has forced me to take a hard look at the grants I make and think about, well, where am I subsidizing business to do things that they would normally do anyway because it makes them more profitable? And where is where is philanthropy needed at that negative 100% return to really move the system or to to work on the issues that maybe have a, a less a lower business value 
and therefore can't get um, can't generate returns or, or can't generate private sector engagement. And so because of that relationship we have with the private sector and because of the demand for sustainability that that our funding and other um, foundations have built up over time, we can really think about how we deploy our dollars differently in a way that does not um, that does not subsidize industry, but also does not put the full burden and cost of doing some really difficult conservation work on the private sector. Um, and and that, that balancing those two um, is a new approach for us and a, and a new way to deploy our money in a way that, that both helps it go farther and also helps us, I think, potentially achieve greater impact um, by working with those companies. I think it helps us achieve greater impact by working with companies who have who have a stake in the game and have to actually produce conservation outcomes as a condition of the the funds that they receive. You're raising that there's sort of these different there's places where markets aren't functioning and that's often where philanthropic capital has come in, but then there's the op- possibility that they're actually suppressing emerging markets because they're sort of providing the subsidy. But then on the other end, if there is no subsidy, some of the this important work never happens. So let's let's spend a minute digging into this the specific 50% forgivable loan, 50% return forgivable loan. Teresa, was there a particular pain point as you were working with Steph and understanding the spectrum of capital that you were feeling that then you were able to sort of plug these ideas into? Yeah. Um, so we talked a lot about how um, how we talk about what we do is almost as important as, as what we do. And so we had, a, you know, even on this discussion earlier today, we talked about all the different ways we talk about two pockets or negative 100% and negative or and and 0% and all these different types of return. And, you know, as we think about how I grant dollars in the foundation, we are really conditioned to think about this as as a grant. It's not a loan. There's not there's it's there. We're not talking about negative 100% return. We're talking about grants to achieve specific conservation outcomes. So internally, when we think about, well, what does it mean to actually get someone to sort of pay the foundation back? This idea of the foundation lending money to a for-profit entity was actually kind of a tough sell internally until we spun that on, well, this is actually a recoverable grant. It is a grant to achieve a specific conservation outcome, just like our other grants are. And in fact, the goals of of this recoverable grant are the same as a grant that we don't recover. And we get a bonus, half that grant money comes back into a pool that we can redeploy. And it was sort of icing, you know, on the on the top of the cake that half of that that grant would come back to us to apply to, to other work. Um, when we talked to the company, they were really not sure what to do with a grant at all and, and a, a recoverable grant. And what does that really mean? And they said, no, we, 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 need a, we need a loan. And the portion of the loan that's forgiven is taxable income to us. It's consulting fee for service um, because that's essentially you giving us money to deliver these specific outcomes um, that we are contractually obligated to deliver. And so we have this one 
financial vehicle that's being interpreted in two different ways based on the the context in in, in which we work. And so um, in talking through with Stephanie, she's like, it's the same thing. It's, you know, it's, it's just different sides of the coin. So why don't we message it both ways so that it makes sense? It doesn't change the structure of the work. It doesn't change the outcomes of the work, but it does change the, the comfort or, or, or it addresses the comfort issues that the different entities have with, with the capital. And that in and of itself reinforces this sort of perspective of full spectrum capital. It's not actually different money. It's just how we perceive it is different. And, and so framing it in a way that, that each sort of entity is comfortable with what was an important part of, of getting this, this deal done. Um, and, and it really did come down to communications on, on, that, on that side. So to that point, Teresa, I'd love to ask you, um, if somebody came to you and said, this negative 50% return investment, is this, a, is this a market rate, concessionary, below market rate investment? How would you respond to that? Well, it depends on who was asking. <laughs> I mean, in the foundation, my the point that I stressed is the outcomes of this grant are the same as the outcomes of any other grant we would make. We're looking for um, better data around the fishery so that it can be more effectively managed. We're looking for um, management plans to go be put into place. Um, coordination and organization of the fishing community so they become better advocates for sustainability. And, and these are things that we regularly write into grants. So when I put that across to the legal team, they were like, oh yeah, sure, great. You can get half of that money back. That's excellent. And there was sort of no pushback on that side. If I had, if I had come forward with, this is a loan that we're going to forgive half of, I think the, um, I think there would have been a lot more questions asked around sort of, is this benefiting business? Why would you forgive a loan to, to a business? Does that provide them with material value? Are we subsidizing industry? What, is, what does all this mean? And so it, it really did come down to framing and communications. And we did use an intermediary in this case. So we did make a grant to um, an entity that would then lend out the, the money to the different um, the, the different for-profit companies that, that agreed to these specific forgiveness milestones. But, you know, in the end, the, the process was the same and, and the outcomes that we're trying to achieve were the same, whether it, it was on the loan side or the, or the grant side. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it was really a, an exercise of being empathetic and understanding the, the perspective of the person that you're talking to in order to, to do this work. Teresa, can you tell us, what is the company that you made this forgivable loan to and how is what they're doing aligned with the outcomes that you're normally looking for in your programmatic work? It's a company called OneSkip and this company provides services to processors that help them improve traceability, improve data management, improve the quality of the fish that they sell. Um, and this company went into a country that had just recently joined um, a, a, a multinational fisheries management um, organization for tuna. And they, the country now had to start reporting on their tuna catches. And they had to start um, managing their, their tuna fishery effectively. They had all of these things that they had to do and they have very little support to do it. Um, and in addition, the opportunity to be able to sell 
seafood from a small scale fishery that's traceable, that meets sustainability requirements, that's well managed, creates a huge market opportunity for companies to sell into the markets that that care about sustainability. So so the the money going to this technology company is really for them to provide capacity to um, the different actors who need to comply with all these sustainability rules, but also to sell their product based on the fact that once we've got these sustainability pieces in place and we can provide you the technology to, to communicate your sustainability story, they're able to get additional customers for their business based on all this sustainability work that they're putting in. So, um, you know, they're, they're within the supply chain, but still close to the fisheries and, and, selling sustainability as part of selling their brand. And so our money went into both doing all of the groundwork that would normally be, be beyond the scope of what a company would do to get a fishery into a place where it could be sustainable. And then the repayment part allows them to actually grow their business um, in, in a way that can help them capitalize on on the sustainability that benefits a much broader sector of the population than just that one company. So they're in, in, in essence investing into a public good with, with the forgivable portion and growing their business with the portion that they have to repay. You can essentially say the tax code hasn't ca caught up with what organizations are willing to do to make money and make the world a better place. So you take a, a group of donors and, and you provide an opportunity to invest in a company like this, you're going to get a response of, we're donors, we're not investors. Mm -hmm. And then the same company providing, let's say five or six benefits, sustainable fisheries, women led, whatever the, the topics are of the company that are philanthropic, you would say, if this were a nonprofit, would you donate? And when we've, we've run this uh, uh, scenario, a, a third of the hands are raised by the donors. And they're like, yes, if it were a nonprofit, I would donate to it. Hmm. And, and so then you, un you unpack that and you say, well, we give nonprofits our highest risk capital to save the world. And it's the return is negative 100% financial return. You're not going to get it back. And then we kind of handcuff the nonprofits. We say they have to be cash on cash. They can't take risk. They, they can't fail. They can't leverage their capital in the way you can in the private sector. And then, then you say, now let's talk about a startup. Um, they don't even have to make the world a better place. They're going to fail 75 to 85% of the time, giving you a negative 100% grant nonprofit return. And yet they're allowed to fail. They're allowed to risk. They're allowed to leverage. And so the question becomes is how do we plot that third way of where entities are willing to try and attempt to make a, a financial return, but also to solve these public good failures. And then we need this full spectrum aligned capital to come in and support that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really interesting in terms of, of risk to the foundation and achieving our outcomes, because I think the other thing that's really important to, to note is that, you know, our when philanthropic dollars go into a project to deliver impact, there's still no guarantee that that impact will happen. Um, and, and that same week that I made this grant to this recoverable grant, um, one of my colleagues made a grant to an NGO to do the same sorts of advocacy, to organize fishermen, to improve data collection, to improve government reporting, to improve government management of fisheries. And they put it into an NGO. And there's no guarantee either way that the outcomes are going to be better or worse through one entity or another. And in fact, what we're starting to, to understand is that 
the role of these companies who are deeply invested in these fisheries, who have a financial stake, may actually be pretty significant in terms of advocacy for reform. So if companies are advocating for good fisheries management, is their voice louder or more better heard than if an NGO is doing it too? And so it gets really interesting to think about not only how we deploy our money differently, but how are all these different stakeholders in this sector, how are their voices heard differently and how do we bring everyone toward advocating for the same type of of public good that we need, which is in this case, good fisheries management of this publicly held resource. Steph, how are you seeing this unlocking new opportunities, both for investors and for companies, as Teresa's highlighting, that this allowed this company to do more groundwork around sustainability and good practices than they would have been able to do with sort of market rate capital. You have such a broad view from Colorado Impact Days and through the Impact Finance Center. What what else are you seeing as far as how this just sort of shakes things up and opens up new opportunities? Well, what's really exciting about this transaction is it really demonstrates the full spectrum effect of, of the capital in that it's a negative 50% return investment. We have, through Impact Days, just even the nonprofit sector, we're able to provide a 101% return for a private foundation making taking their grant dollars at negative 100% return and doing a 1% loan to a museum and saving that museum $550,000 a year. Or using a donor advised fund for a building renovation of a nonprofit center in downtown Denver, also 101% return, saving the nonprofit $6 million. And so it's been, I won't say easy, relatively easy, pushing water uphill kind of easy to get this 1% money unlocked or to get this aligned even 10x money unlocked. But what's exciting about this conversation is we're starting to have conversations, especially with the backbone organizations, the intermediaries, those that need operating dollars and grant dollars of negative 100% and loan capital or equity capital to say, what if we got real about it? What if, instead of asking for two separate asks of money, give me some grant dollars plus some investment dollars, what if you blend that dollar? And and what if we start saying to serve veterans in a state like Colorado might cost us negative 12% money to provide the supportive services, capacity building, and the investment capital? Maybe women is negative eight. It is what it is. And so it's uh, it's it's been, what as they say, like 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 uh, pushing an iceberg with flippers on. It takes a it took three years to get our first two transactions done, and um, since that time we've identified in Colorado over 500 transactions, and we've identified, educated, and activated uh, about close to 50 new impact investors. And you add that with the existing 200. And we've already seen catalyzed close to 200 direct investments for over $250 million. And so I would say the first two transactions took three years and the last hundred transactions took probably six months. And so you're starting to see that momentum pick up. And as you have eight of our 18 community foundations start to dip their toe into this, um, it creates safety. Once other people um, see other people like themselves doing it, then all of a sudden it becomes safe for you to do it too. And so for a 
foundation, especially let's say someone on the on the program side who is usually using grant money to advance their social outcomes or really for individual philanthropists as well. Is there a starting place? How do they start thinking about ways that potentially a loan or some other type of investment that just looks and feels different than a grant? Um, is there is there sort of a best place to start? You know, when, when you work in philanthropy, people are always coming to you with ideas of, of projects to fund. And, you know, I think, I think especially um, foundations and donors who have a very specific issue that they want to impact, there's a lot of sort of hand wringing around, well, does this deal generate the impact that I'm looking for? And, and you know, we get really nervous around our, our ability to deliver impact. So asking that question of, well, would you provide a grant to deliver these outcomes? And if the answer is yes, and you actually have an opportunity to to recoup some of that those grant dollars to then redeploy into another meaningful project to deliver outcome, then then why why wouldn't you take that approach? But I think that question around would you provide a grant to do this work? Would you provide a grant to this organization to support their mission? When there's also a simultaneous opportunity to to potentially recoup recoup some or all of those grant dollars, the it starts become becoming easier to think about new ways to deploy the money. So th- this company did originally come to us actually for a grant to do some of this work, and the question back to them was almost the reverse. Well, this is what you're building your business on, right? Would you consider a a loan where you where we'll forgive some of it if you can still accomplish this instead of a grant and their response was yeah sure we think we can get this done and we think we can make our business better because of it so asking those questions alone is always i, I think the most important first step just to explore a different way of thinking about about the money and the project that reminds me of with entrepreneurs the encouragement is often to make sure you're falling in love with solving the problem rather than mm-hmm. falling in love with your solution. Mm-hmm. And the same is probably true for investors that a really clear focus on this is the problem I'm trying to solve and a little less attachment to it being grant dollars. Um, but rather what are the type of dollars that actually help us solve that problem is probably a useful it applies both both ways. You know, it's it's interesting. You asked the question of how do you how do you get going? If you're sitting here listening to this conversation and you're and you're saying to yourself, I'm an individual, I'm a program officer, I'm a trustee, how do you take that first step? And I think that's been the the a couple of the key lessons we've learned is you have to find low cost, safe ways to learn by doing. Like how do we reduce the barriers to entry so your first opportunity is something that's fun, it's safe, you get to you, you actually get to feel like you can do it in a way where you're hitting a T-ball versus a 85 mile an hour fast pitch um, coming through the door. And, and that's been the biggest lesson that we've learned as we've kind of gone through this process. And so we're piloting um, three different ways to scale investor learning faster. One is we're putting our education content online and creating a sliding scale social justice impact investing institute to not only teach about the tools, but actually uh, provide the case studies. So once you learn more about what's possible, then you're more likely to 
to say, oh, maybe that would work in my situation. The second one, we actually have to thank Teresa because we are now expanding our uh, Impact Finance Center Impact Investing Fellowship. And, and it was created because Teresa called us and said, hey, I have some professional development money. What could you do for $2,500? And we now have 10 people in the fellowship program since Teresa's first conversation. And that first cohort of four of them, I believe by next month, that each four, which are one program officer and three trustees, will have all done a first PRI within six months. And so that's a much faster process from identification, education to activation than we were seeing six years ago. You weren't seeing people go from, oh, I'm interested to getting educated to actually doing the first step quickly. And then the third tool we're incredibly excited about is with the Women's Foundation of Colorado. And so what we're piloting is um, uh, innovation on the concept of a getting circle, because a lot of donors, um, when they show up to the table, they'll, they'll say, I'm, I'm not an investor, I'm a donor. So we're now using giving circle and donor language to provide those donors with their first safe step. And so essentially, we're going to get 20 to 60 donors to donate into a giving circle at the Women's Foundation of Colorado. And unlike another giving circle, when we do a call for social ventures, and this one's going to focus on projects, nonprofits, social enterprises, startups, small businesses, funds, co-ops in the state of Colorado, when we do a call for social ventures, and after we do our outreach in our classes in the community, we're going to get 100 transactions for 100 to 500 million, and we're only going to have $150,000 in this circle of actual money. The asset owners in that circle are going to represent hundreds of millions of dollars. And they'll panic and go, but we only have 150000 and there's $100 million of need. And we'll say, that's okay. Let's pick a big one, and a small one, and a high-risk one, and a low-risk one crazy thing. Unlike your other giving circle, there's a small chance some of the money might come back. And if it does, we'll just recycle it and do it again. And so Teresa's point, two to Teresa's point earlier, communication is everything. When you, if, you, if you have a chance of your grant coming back, that's a very different feeling of somebody not paying back half your loan. Yeah. Yeah, it really is because you're used to those grant dollars going out and going away and hopefully you get some impact back. And I think to Steph's point, making people comfortable in this space, especially those of us who come from the donor or philanthropic side, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, investment was always very intimidating. Um, you know, it relies on these sort of complex financial models and all this talk around due diligence. And one of the things that's been most eye-opening as I've started to dip my toe into this investment community is that a lot of a lot of the decisions that say angel investors make about what they choose to invest in, it's it's not that different than the decisions and how we make decisions on the philanthropic side. I mean, at that point, a project, a company is all promise, right? You make your decisions based on do you trust the team doing the work? Do you think they're solving a problem that needs to be solved? Is there a demand or a market for the work that they're doing? And can they actually carry this off out in the amount of money that they're asking for? These are all questions I ask when I make a grant. And they're the same questions that an angel investor asks. And so this, this sort of comfort in my ability to make decisions around something that is not a traditional grant, you know, I come from the nonprofit and the science sector. I'm not used to doing investments. Um, having that comfort and that assurance that, like, actually, we're all sort of making these decisions in the same way and we're all taking risks. 
We just have different sets of expectations around what we get back from the money that we deploy. Um, that was really helpful and comforting in, in, in my ability to sort of move forward with this and, and look at this work in a different way and, and look at how I deploy my, my grant dollars in a different way. Steph, thank you for the work that you're doing to sort of ask these questions, get people thinking in these different ways, building out that space in between negative 100% and 100% return. And Teresa, thank you for being brave enough to take the first step and to think creatively about the ways that you're working with fisheries, working in the oceans, working with the grant dollars that you have at your disposal. Um, thank you both for being here with us today. Thank you so much. And thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between Lindsay, Teresa, and staff about ways that using the full spectrum of capital allows for innovative financial structures and, and new investment opportunities. We know this conversation was uh, a bit more technical than some, so if you're interested in, in learning more about any of the topics or you know, diving into the work that the Walton Family Foundation is doing around recoverable grants or with sustainable fisheries, um, you can find out more at our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net. We'll post some additional resources for anyone who wants to learn more. As always, we'd love to hear from you, and there are a variety of different channels through which you can get in touch with us. You can reach us via email at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on social media such as Twitter or Instagram where you can find us at the handle at SoCapMarkets. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.